Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 12th, 2014, and my guest is Lars Peter Hansen of the University of Chicago. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2013. Lars, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. It's my, it's my privilege. Our, our topic for today is measurement in the face of uncertainty, drawing on a paper you wrote last year on systemic risk and your Nobel Prize lecture along the way. We'll deal with some issues that have come up on Econ Talk dealing with measurement and the scientific nature of economics, if it is scientific. You open the paper uh, early on with a quote from Sir William Thompson, also known as Lord Kelvin. I'm going to read the entire quote. I often say that when you can measure something that you're speaking about, express it in numbers, you know something about it. But when you cannot measure it, when you cannot express it in numbers, your knowledge is of the meager and unsatisfactory kind. It may be the beginning of knowledge, but you have scarcely in your thoughts advanced to the stage of science, whatever the matter might be. Close quote. And as I mentioned recently in, a, in an episode, uh, and as you mentioned your paper, it's carved in stone in the Social Science Research Building at the University of Chicago. It is hard to deny the truth of that quote. What is your perspective? So I do. I'm, <clears throat> I'm very sympathetic to the idea that um, – Economics, at the end of the day, should aim to be quantitative, um, and that that should be our ambition. Uh, and we need, but we need to be quantitative in a sensible way. So, by quantitative, I certainly mean the fact that we should be able to uh, use economic analysis to build models, and these models should have uh, should help us guide policy. These are models, but uh, um, that should be connected to empirical evidence. Now, there's a challenge with all this perspective, and that's the following. Um, this is true of all models. Models are, are always wrong. I mean, I'd say it's, it's, it seems kind of strange to hear that initially, but there's the sense in which mo models are simplifications, they're abstractions, and they're wrong. And it's always a challenge to make, to try to assess how they're kind of wrong in, a, in ways that are essential or inessential and, and the like. And so whenever you're, you're, whenever you have these quantitative ambitions, you have to also recognize that, um, uh, the limitations of the models, and in many, and, and often that's the that's the hardest part of the challenge. And in the area of systemic risk, which is a term that's been used a lot recently, related to the yeah. financial sector, uh, the crisis of two thousand and eight, the issue of too big to fail. Uh, how are we doing um, on measuring systemic uh, risk and and quantifying it? Yeah. So I think there we're at the very primitive stages. Um, I'm certainly happy to that being an example where 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 our knowledge probably is still quite meager. Um, there's the term systemic risk really was not on people's radar screen uh, prior to the financial crisis, and it only became uh, a topic of conversation. Uh, among academics and policymakers prominently after the financial crisis. Now, systemic risk is, it, it, it's had a little bit of a danger of being a buzzword. Um, uh, there's, I, I've, I'm reminded, some people poke fun when I say this, but I'm reminded of a quote by uh, Justice Potter Stewart about pornography, that you kind of know it when you see it, and he wasn't going to really kind of go and give you the formal rigorous definition of it. And there's been a little bit of that aspect of this term systemic risk. It's because of uh, financial regulation like Dodd-Frank, we, we think that there's, it's, it's become kind of the, uh, the code word or mandate for, for, uh, for how we should be looking at the financial sector. Um, but the problem is that we, we are still from a formal economic standpoint learning about it, trying to understand it. Uh, there, there's a variety of different models that are trying to capture it. It's, a, uh, um, in a quantitative fashion. I think we're, we just barely scratched the surface. What, what worries me about it is um, it, it could be like Bigfoot, uh, rumored to exist, but but hard to verify. So it is a buzzword, but it strikes me it's a buzzword that was invoked to justify policy ex post, 
And we don't really have any idea whether that policy was justified or not. The, the bailouts, the TARP, and other policies yeah. were, were, in, were, were done because we had to, it was alleged. It was alleged that we had to because without it, there'd be this massive domino effect. Uh, do you think we have any evidence that that's true? Yeah, uh, that's a really open question. You know, somehow uh, we didn't run the counterfactual about suppose we didn't do yeah. X, uh, didn't take these steps, what would have happened? Um, there was big fear that uh, very, very bad things would have happened. Um, do we know that for sure and and, and the like? I, um, I, I think it's a tremendously important question, and I, and I think it's uh, uh, one that remains open. If you let me just take a step back, if we look at the at the recession, that, I mean the depression in the United States, um, it really took us a very, very long time to get firm understanding of what uh, of, uh, of you know the various different explanations and, and why 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 the recoveries were slow and what triggered it and, and the like. And I suspect the same is going to be going on as we try to understand the uh, exactly what what the important forces were in this financial crisis. But there's lots of interesting conjectures out there. Um, uh, there, but, but we don't know for sure. And back to this concept of systemic risk, it's, if you go and you, um, read some work that comes out of people like Andy Haldane of the Bank of England, I find that Andy Haldane of the Bank of England is, is, um, has been the principal, um, in terms of looking at financial oversight there. And he's, but he's written very, very openly about our lack of knowledge and the lack of knowledge and understanding of concepts like this make regular, uh, financial oversight and regulation challenging. Um, I remember that right after the financial crisis, I went to many conferences of, uh, that would bring together academics and people from, uh, research departments inside various different central banks to try to talk about financial oversight going forward. And a couple of type of observations really struck me at that time. And it was that um, this is a very complicated problem. Uh, and therefore, it requires a complicated solution. And I kind of thought to myself and that, you know, I would agree that this could be a very, very complicated problem um, and that we're still trying to understand it. But complicated problems in the face of limited knowledge don't obviously lead to complicated solutions because, you know, the solution itself can add additional uncertainty and can be counterproductive. It can be overreacting to, to false knowledge and that can be, and that could be harmful. Yeah, it also allows for the possibility of regulatory capture um, lost in the details, which is the thing I, I worry a lot about. I'm going I'm to read a lengthy quote, lengthy, it's about a paragraph, uh, that where yeah. you talk about this issue, which I thought was extremely um, apt. You said, uh, and this is from that paper where the systemic risk paper of 2013, quote, what is at stake here is more than just a task for statisticians. Even though policy challenges may appear to be complicated, it does not follow that policy design should be complicated. Acknowledging or confronting gaps in modeling has long been conjectured to have important implications for economic policy. As an analogy, I recall Friedman's 1960s argument for a simplified approach to the design of monetary policy. His policy prescription was premised on the notion of long and variable lags in a monetary transmission mechanism – that was too poorly understood to exploit formally in the design of policy. His perspective was that the gaps in our knowledge of this mechanism were sufficient, that premising activist monetary policy on incomplete models could be harmful. So talk about that uh, again, because I think it's such a crucial insight into good public policy. Yeah. Yeah, so there's – so as I stated at the outset of this interview – at the end of the day, I'm a model builder, and, and so I, 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 that's what I kind of do in my academic career. Uh, but I, but I, but I want to do this in ways that are kind of uh, very useful. Now, one can do the following: one can go out there and build some mathematical model. Um, you can pr you produce some some you know wonderful mathematical equations. You can kind of do some rigorous analysis of that given model, and you can even generate beautiful computer output from it. And that can all that's and and. Um, and get a good publication uh, out yeah, of it. <laughs> you can get publications out of, out of it as well. Yeah. Uh, the thing is that 
um, just because you've written it down as a formal mathematical model, and, and, and I'm also big on mathematics because I, I think it adds clarity between mapping of assumptions to conclusions, that alone doesn't mean that it's right, and that alone doesn't mean that you should have 100% confidence in it, and you shouldn't just look to this formal apparatus to say, see, it's nice and formal, and formal, therefore we should have confidence in it. And that's why this... Um, and so I kind of think of Friedman as saying, well, people are writing down these models of the monetary transmission mechanism, but I'm not sure how seriously I should take them. And, and uh, uh, I can think of other models that might have other implications. And, and, and um, until we really have the empirical evidence to, to kind of discriminate among competing explanations, uh, we have to leave them uh, alternative possibilities on the table. And we have to use models in sensible ways that recognize their limits as well as what they can, uh, as well as the clarity they add. And we can recognize that they're wrong and we have to always have our eyes open to the fact that are they wrong in crucial ways that affect these, uh, the policy conclusions. So if you write down this complicated, you know, this model, it's elaborate, it's got this wonderful mathematical structure, you work out the optimal policy that comes out of it. There's a danger if you take that too seriously that, that, that and don't acknowledge the fact that the model has limitations that you might that, uh, lead to bad policy analysis. And I'm sorry, to a bad policy implementation. Yeah, so it, that was um, – you're talking about Friedman in the 1960s. In 1974, uh, Hayek wins the Nobel Prize and yeah. his Nobel address is the pretense of knowledge, which yeah. basically says that attempts to model the economy and the macroeconomy are – faux science. There's scientism. They give the illusion of science. And now we come to 2014. So we're half a century after Friedman's early thoughts on this. Yeah. We have John Taylor at Stanford who talks about the value of rules over discretion. We've yeah. had 50 years of data, 50 years of econometric uh, sophistication and improvement. Have yeah. we gotten any better? Is there any evidence that Friedman's rules should be replaced by something more sophisticated. So one, um, yes. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think not we even know give me a maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so our learning—it's—it's uh, it's the case on questions like this that our learning sometimes goes quite slowly, and you know it doesn't. Uh, uh, our the knowledge, our advance of knowledge is, is sometimes sluggish, but I think we've learned a lot about the uh, the potential alternative sources of monetary transmission mechanisms. I think we've learned a lot about, you know, better implementations of monetary policy in kind of normal times. Um, it is the case, and uh, there's lots of people out there that say that they predicted the financial crisis. Um, my question to them is, did they really predict the quantitative impact of the financial crisis. I mean, lots of people said, well, you know, the housing market might crash and that could have ramifications and the like. But, but I think what caught really people lots of this by surprise is the whole magnitude of the responses um, as well. It, that ex That's new data. That exposed gaps in models we had and it exposed gaps of models being used, uh, being used in monetary policy because at that point in time, a lot of the macro models had a fairly passive financial sector inside the models. Yeah. And now we're trying to th rethink all the models to say, well, maybe this is far too passive, and maybe this interplay between what goes on in financial markets and the macroeconomy needs to be thought about much more carefully. And we need to think about when can uh, financial regulation lead to harmful effects versus uh, versus when does it seem to be necessary? So I do think that we've learned stuff, and I think we're going to learn stuff coming. Learning more, we're going to learn more coming out of this financial crisis. Uh, but we've got a long ways to go. But it does raise the possibility that new data don't help us improve the model. It's just a different model, right, that we need to be thinking about. So you think about the recovery from the financial crisis, which um, has been disappointing. I don't think any economists uh, really predicted that magnitude or understood it. Most of the former predictions were wrong. Um, and I've, I've become somewhat skeptical. Okay, I'm being polite. I've become very skeptical of our ability to um, – to quantify those things. In fact, I, I want to suggest let, – let me – I'm not going to challenge Lord Kelvin. I think the question is whether economics is a scientific enterprise. Would we not yeah. be better off treating it more like history? Nobody pretends to quantify the relative importance of the causes of World War I, of which there are 50. Uh, we will have many causes of this financial crisis. Some of them are more plausible than others. Certainly, evidence will matter. 
But the idea that we could treat the economy with any precision seems unlikely to me. I'm, so I'm, I'm going to stick with Hayek 74. Do you want to disagree? Uh, do you want me to disagree with you and Hayek? Or, yeah, um, or, so, or not. Well, you could agree. It would be great. Well, but <laughs> I doubt you will. Let me talk about Hayek. Yeah. Hayek 74 is fascinating reading. Um, I, I, um, I, sometimes when I give talks these days, I lift a quote out of, that, out of, his, out of his Nobel address. And it's very interesting in that Nobel address. He says we, he, he's not against using mathematics, but really the type of uh, we really ought to think about economics and, and, and even the use of mathematics is providing clar- clarity and leading to more qualitative modeling. And that the quantitative part is, is something that he doesn't take that he challenges as, as possible. Now, I don't take that extreme of a view. I think I, I think the part of the Hayek essay that's interesting is the fact that you know overconfidence, the statements, of, the, the potentially harmful effects of overconfidence in our in, in quantitative modeling, and I'm completely on board on that. But I really, to me, um, we need models to help us understand systematically when evidence is um, more informative and when it's less informative. We need, uh, and just because, just because there's lots of uncertainty out there doesn't mean that models can't be a useful guide. So I want to incorporate uncertainties inside models in credible ways, and that's what I view as the as the productive step forward. I think it's uh, it's useful. It's important. Both in terms of how we use evidence to to um, understand better the economic um, system, and I think it's also uh, potentially valuable as a guide in policy, provided that we use it in sensible ways. So, so I guess I will be disagreeing with both of you on that front. That's fine. Uh, l- let me take you to a, uh, a sort of micro area of that of those yeah. of those ideas, an issue I talk about sometimes. Uh, find myself uh, arguing with friends about would be. Uh, let's say you're in a financial firm like uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, and it's 2005. Uh, you're at Bear Stearns. You're at Lehman Brothers, and your risk people are using a model called value at risk, which is an attempt to try to figure out how systemic the risk is within your firm. How how is it? How likely is it? What's the probability that your portfolio could could have a really bad uh, day and have yeah. a catastrophic impact and that's a very challenging thing to quantify, and there have been a lot of advances in trying to quantify that. And one of them yeah. that people use is called value at risk. And yeah. I, it strikes me that having that tool in your hands maybe would work fine because you're very aware of the uh, dangers. You're very skeptical about, as you've said a few times already, about the, the tendency toward overconfidence. But most human beings seem to struggle with that, and it, it raises the possibility – and uh, Nassim Taleb has been an advocate of, of this view that actually you're so prone to fooling yourself on this, you're better off not using it at all. Um, talk about that psychological uh, phenomenon for both – I'm giving an example of you know a financial firm, but it's obviously a problem for policymakers as well. There is a – so let me talk about the policymaker side of this first. There is a danger, I think, that uh, – I think a real, you know, this is relevant for the political economy that um, politicians like to get like to um, embrace economists who express their views with inc- with incredible confidence. And Very well said. That can be problematic. <laughs> yeah. That can be can be problematic because in a lot of cases that confidence is not real or shouldn't be real. It's a, it's a, it's, it's uh, and it's not you know premised on solid evidence or necessarily solid analysis. It is opinion. It can be stated prompt. You know, it could be stated with great confidence, but if it's opinion, we it's it's also good to ask. You know, are other opinions? You know, to, you know, what other opinions are consistent with the data, and what are their ramifications? So. Um, so I do think that there is a danger in having false confidence, and I and I think it's uh, it's very it can be very present and it's very evident in the uh, in the policy arena. Um, there's some other wonderful quotes from Milton Friedman on this topic. There's some great quotes in this Hayek essay, which you uh, which you make reference to on this topic, which I'm sympathetic with respect to. The tool value at risk is interesting in this in the sense of it's it's going at a it's going really in places in which statisticians know are very very challenging. So value at risk is looking at what people call the tails of distributions and under the, and the tails of distributions are places in which the amount of empirical evidence we have is often fairly, uh, fairly, fairly thin and sparse. And, and, and the value at risk models is that, that 
I'll tell you what, risk model can work very, very well through normal times and then all of a sudden just, you know, just completely miss. Which is just when because you need what it, it does, <laughs> it, 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 just because, you know, if you have too much confidence in how it's working through normal times, then that's, those are the situations in which you can potentially be burned. So you really, when you study these kind of low frequency tail events, I, I agree that you need to do some type of robustness analysis. You can't just simply embrace um, a value at risk model based on one distribution, or 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 um, and and um, really uh, really have full confidence and have full confidence in the outcomes coming out of it. So, again, my view is I don't want to throw away models of tail risk, I, uh, but I want to attach with those models the appropriate degree of uncertainty. And, and also to engage in some form of kind of robustness analysis. Suppose that it wasn't quite this, it was that the distribution's off in this particular way. What are the consequences of that? And so my claim is that that's hard to do um, yeah. in, a, in certain environments. And as a result, um, you know, the, the counterpoint, when I say, well, we shouldn't use models like that that are so uh, dangerous because it's hard to remember to do the robustness checks and all that. Uh, the counterpoint is, well, what are we going to do? Other, What's the alternative? And the alternative is to operate in a world where you know that your knowledge is very poor. And um, again, people made investments. You know, I, I think of history. Uh, people made assessments about history without quantitative knowledge. They did the best they could. Uh, it, it, it's possible that if you're in a financial setting where you have to take risks, you're better off not quantifying them because that fools you into thinking that it that it's uh, safer than it is. Yeah, I think throwing away quantification completely is I, I just to me I think it's far too extreme and and is and leads you to uh, a very not it's, I, almost throwing out a, a useful framework for decision making. So I on that I guess I'm on a different view. Uh, I really well, do believe that I really do believe that 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 we. I, that that any type of sensible management of firms or anything, it has to involve some type of quantitative analysis. And I think the real challenge is to make sure we can do it better and and, and uh, to expand our tools, to expand our thinking, and not to like, uh, you know, just because these are mathematical tools with, with, you know, that look very nice, that that doesn't necessarily make them right all the time. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I certainly wouldn't suggest we throw out all quantitative methods in any setting, yeah. whether it's a firm or a financial firm or a regular firm. But it's interesting. I think it highlights the potential of, of the focuses on the question: of Where do you draw the line? When do you start saying yeah. this advance may not be an advance? Um, let, let's back up for a sec. Let's talk about uh, risk versus uncertainty, or as, as you phrase it, and it's often phrased these days: risk versus ambiguity. Because we're both really talking about both those concepts in this conversation, and and I think it would be uh, be useful to highlight the difference. Yeah. So I like to think about there being three different components to the concept of uncertainty. So um, I guess the initial distinctions of kind of these, uh, at least two of these components goes all the way back to Frank Knight, a University of Chicago economist, many, many, uh, who was prominent decades ago. Um, and I, Keynes was also wrestling with these issues to some extent, I suppose. Well, um, so let me just try to draw the following distinction. So suppose I write down some model and the model has what economists would call shocks with distributions attached to these shocks and the like. And that's um, uh, that model when fully specified will tell you probabilities of all the future um, events that are, you know, within the, within the domain of the model. So you've got a full, there's, there's, uncertainty out there, but it's certainly under which you've got the model just tells you all the probabilities of everything. And so once you've got the model, it's it's done. So I like to think of that as risk. It's like if if I fully embrace this model, there's uh there's the uh there's the risk component. There's a random element to life that, that we might be able right, to quantify, right. but we don't know what's yeah. gonna happen tomorrow. We don't Yeah, yeah you don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow model tomorrow, but I can with this model I can tell you the probabilities of what's gonna happen tomorrow. Right. Raining, not raining. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But so, so I'm going to think about that as a risk. Now, in in scientific disciplines, and certainly this is very prominent in economics, and then we could talk about other things like climate change as well. But let's talk about economics. Um, there's there's different models out there. There's, uh, um, uh, e you know, even a given model, you, I might not know all the details of it, the so-called parameters of the model. There may be multiple models out there and the, and the like. So now, for me to to 
to assign probabilities on all these on the future, I have to start saying, well, how much weight do I want to put on this model versus that model? Um, uh, each, you know, each distinct model and the like. So this issue about how I want to weight, how much confidence I put in the different models out there. And if, you know, once I make a specification of that confidence, then I can also continue to assign probabilities to things. The process of assigning probabilities across models, I, um, there I think is a, is, I think of that as a source of, as a potential source of ambiguity. You know, I'm not really sure how to do that, um, and, and I, um, and, and how do I confront that on, that component of uncertainty? There's a third component that I think is probably the hardest part, but I think maybe that in many respects the most important part is that is all the models are in some sense wrong. Um, how do I use models in sensible ways that in, in ways that are in some sense robust to different forms of misspecification? I, I, I acknowledge that they're wrong, but I don't quite, if, if, if I knew exactly how they were wrong, I just fix them. And so I have to somehow confront that form of uncertainty as well. So those are the different pieces that 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 I like to think about uh, when I think about uncertainty. Yeah, and we've really been talking about all three of them, I think, um, so far. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go back a little bit in history because uh, you make reference to a to a, a work that was an important part of my graduate school education, which is uh, Burns and Mitchell's 1946 uh, work on business cycles, which was I went to University of Chicago in the in the uh, late 70s and. Um, Robert Lucas was my macroeconomics professor, and that was really a um, – he was extremely interested in, the, in that work. Uh, what they did is they tried uh, to give a very thorough picture of how economies move in good times and bad. Uh, you reference a review of that work by Jalen Koopmans, who who um, won the Nobel Prize. I. Uh, that criticized their work as, quote, measurement without theory. So talk about how this interaction between describing versus understanding, whether you whether it's good to just quantify or whether you need more than just the, the numbers themselves. And I think that's the discussion between yeah. Burns and Mitchell and Copeman's. Right. So I actually think Burns and Mitchell type activities can be very can, uh, can be very useful. Um, it's just that if you want to do something with them, then you have to put more structure on it. But, you know, suppose you want to go out and say, I'm just going to go collect a bunch of data and just let the data speak. And so while the data has, once it starts speaking to specific questions, then that requires more structure to it. Um, uh, and, and so once you want to take it beyond the fact that, well, here's some pattern in the data that, that looks intriguing, um, you, Burns and Mitchell were, were were not just doing some massive fishing expedition. They you know they they thought it'd be useful to try to get you know characterizations of what a business cycle was and and, and the like. And um, so that was uh, and so they obviously had some good intuitive insights in what they were doing. Uh, but to take them to the next stage to really understand um, relevant policies, macroeconomic policy analysis when it came to the. Uh, how they confront business cycles, that requires more. That requires more formal economic analysis and it requires more, um, you know, more serious thought about the, about the consequences. So there's another part of this as well that, you know, Burns and Mitchell had fairly ad hoc methods for, for, uh, uh for producing their evidence, which, which, which are use, useful, but it was, it was also challenging to figure out how the quality of the evidence, evidence that they were producing. So lots of people after Burns and Mitchell tried to say, well, let's, let's make this a little bit more formal statistically so I can assess the qual quality of the evidence. And so Burns and Mitchell, you know, got them going. And I think there was some, you know, follow-up work that kind of showed how you can map it into more formal statistical methods that, that was also useful because that, that allows us to make a little bit better assessment on the, uh, of the uh, quality of the data and, and the quality of the evidence which they were looking at. Let me re recount a conversation I had with an applied economist on this issue of measurement and, and theory and get your reaction. Uh, he had found that um, when when Walmarts uh, come to uh, a, a city, it drives wages down. Um, but he found that only to be true in large cities. And I found that extremely surprising and counterintuitive and I thought wrong. And I said, well, how do you reconcile the fact that in large cities, there's less competition. There's more competition, presumably, and Walmart adding to the demand for workers should push wages up, not down, if at all. It's certainly not down, yeah. though. And his response is, "Well, I'm not handicapped by that any particular theory 
of yeah. the labor market. You're, he said, you're handicapped by a neoclassical model of labor markets. I just let yeah. the data speak. Uh, what do you think of that approach? Uh, so I think in this case, I'm with you in the sense of if I've got this empirical evidence and it looks anomalous, I want to go out and understand it. And I want to understand it from, from the guise of what I think of as a um, economic model that uh, puts on place some incentives that I expect to, uh, uh, to be out there and the role of markets and, and, and market interactions. And when I do that, it may well lead me to think about other, other things going on that would help to explain this evidence. So, so the first part of my career, I'm spending a lot of time kind of documenting puzzles uh, in asset markets, kind of trying to connect the macroeconomy to the asset markets. And those are, I mean, it's, there were like dramatic puzzles out there, and they led to say, well, maybe I have to think about things differently as a consequence. Um, and I guess I would put this in that same category. I, I'm not going to throw out economics. I'm going to say, well, this is this is. This is, this is a bit of a disconnect, and I got to think hard about how to close that disconnect because if I don't have a good, coherent theoretical explanation for things, and I, I just don't know how to use the evidence. Yeah, his view is that not only you don't have that theory, it's it's a it's wrong. It's better to not have any theory because then the data just speak for themselves. And, you know, well, my, if the theory is wrong, let's kind of figure out in ways it's wrong that are also convincing and can, can consistent with other evidence. Yeah, I think that's the right question. Of course, the other point is that. Uh, you can spend a lot of time fishing um, and yeah. find a lot of things that you know may be fish or not, but you can be fooled into thinking you're fish. <laughs> you, you have a lot of choices when you do those kind of empirical analyses about what to include and not to include. So you have you – know, you said every model is wrong. Um, certainly every conjecture about a fact is also uh, often wrong without other clarifying evidence or uh, understanding. So coming back to the um, – Coming back to the Kelvin quote, a rather uh, remarkable bit of, of economic history that, that I wasn't aware of, Kelvin arguing that it's important to quantify our knowledge. Uh, talk about what Knight and Viner's perspective uh, to yeah. mid – early 20th century, mid, mid first half of the tw- 20s and 30s at, at the University of Chicago. Um, how did they respond to, to uh, Cal- Lord Kelvin's uh, insight? Well um- – Apparently, this is fascinating work that was uh, done by my colleague Stephen Stigler, detective work, along with some other people. Uh, this was that quote when it went in the social uh, social science building had some controversy attached to it. And you know, Viner has this, um, which I quote in my essay. I don't have the exact words now, but basically, even if you even if you can express something in numbers and quantitatively, our knowledge may be meager. So that you know that that's it's kind of like you know just because. Just because you show me some numbers, that doesn't mean that uh, our knowledge is, has suddenly become firm and the like. And so it's, it's it, I think it was more of a reminder that we, uh, of, um, that economic, um, evidence is sometimes, um, challenging to make it fully persuasive and, and, and that we have to, like, um, accept the fact that that we may be learning slowly and, and, or that our knowledge or that our knowledge base is you know, relatively limited when we're looking at direct evidence uh, on well, the behavior. I have the quote here, actually. Knight said okay. in response, Good. if you cannot measure a thing, go ahead and measure it anyway. And Viner, yeah, was, kind of <laughs> and Viner was, even when we can measure a thing, our knowledge will be meek or unsatisfactory. So they were, they were a little bit skeptical. Yeah, so Knight was kind of just poking fun of the, of the, of the, of the me- measurement excerpts. So the measurement enterprise, I guess, in some sense. I, I view Knight as more flippant. Um, that yep, I agree. And the finer <laughs> one is uh, reminding us of the, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't overplay this. You know, yeah, yeah, don't overplay this process in the sense of it's it's it's, uh, it's which we should acknowledge the fact that there's bigger character of things and just you know making things quantitative isn't uh, doesn't address that fully or or even partially, I suppose. And um, and then you have a rather remarkable uh, insight about Lord Kelvin and the age of the sun. Talk about that. Yes. So Lord Kelvin, yeah, yeah, so it's like Lord Kelvin was in this debate with Darwin. He was challenging Darwin's uh, theory of evolution based on uh, based on his own calculations, uh, and he um, ended up missing theory. Uh, and so he produced his own models, and he basically announced, "Look, you know, Darwin's uh, calculations can't be right because of uh, just through, through the guise of his own models." And then it turns out a key energy source was missing from his models, and and, and his uh, and, and his models actually had a mistake 
or a flaw or a gap in them that, that was critical to trying to uh, assess the uh, the, um, the insights of Darwin. Well, he's yeah, his, magnitude. Yeah, well, his calculation of the age of the sun was 20 million years old, I think is what it, you wrote. Is that right? Uh, that could be. I don't have it right here, but yeah. Well, I think it, the, upper was, bound, it, it the upper bound, the upper bound, I remember, the upper bound was 100 million, yeah. and there was a worry that that yeah. wouldn't give enough time for evolution to take place, uh, which yeah. is, it's slightly off, that 100 million, it appears. Right. Yes. Way off, yes. Yes. Yes, Darwin's cal- – in this case, Kelvin's own calculations were, 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 were way far off given his models. So this is a case where perhaps he had too much confidence in his own models. But, but I think the difference potentially is that at least we have – I think we have more confidence that the sun is billions of years old than, than Kelvin could have had and it being, say, tens of millions. Um, and our, well, I, think, I, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's true. Of course, there's no way of really knowing, right? There's no way of really verifying whether we're, we have a more accurate age of the sun. But given current scientific knowledge, it appears that the sun is billions of years old, not tens of millions. Um, yes. I worry that economics isn't like that. Um, can you can you list some areas where you feel we've we've improved our precision in anything remotely like that? Finance might be one of them, by the way. So so I uh, saw so finance's successes. Um, uh, the challenges in finance are to connect it to basic economics, um, you know, except, you know, okay, the, the principle of no arbitrage or something, I suppose, it's some, but, but by itself doesn't have a huge amount of content. Um, the challenge in the finance, for me anyway, has been to try to understand the actual patterns in the data through a, through a fully specified economic models. Um, we can, we can do it through, you know, more general, you know, <clears throat> the question is what makes what makes things like financial markets uh, fluctuate over time? What makes seeming uh, markets look more risk averse some periods than other periods, and 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 the like? And, and and so we have lots of I think a huge amount of systematic evidence on 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 the patterns out there. Uh, and you know some of them are flimsy, but some of them are fairly robust. I mean, you have the kind of wizard at doing um, high quality empirical analyses in uh, in, in finance is Gene Fama. So he's just, when when Gene reports stuff, it's it, it's, it seems to be reliable and robust. So we have, I think we have a fair amount of knowledge out there. The, uh, the challenge for me anyway right now is, you know, exactly how do we build the, the, the more fully specified models consistent with that evidence. But I think putting that evidence out there in ways that, that are interpretable, that, 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 that has the potential to links to models has been very valuable. And I think it's going to help us think better about modeling going forward. Do you think we're going to get better and better at finance as well as in macro, as well as macro generally? Or do you think that the likelihood of those improvements is better in one field versus the other? Uh, someone can argue that the evidence that we have coming out of uh, financial markets is richer, and there's some, but the evidence that's really pertinent to understanding how the economy works is not. I mean, it's financial markets are forward-looking, and so they're telling us how what people they're t- giving us some evidence of how people think. But then how they, but that also interplays with well how they confront risk and uncertainty and the and the like. So the forward-looking nature makes them intriguing. But on the other hand, it's 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 to actually fully process that requires some other um, components of the model that are that we're still trying to sort out. There are rich sources, very very rich sets coming out of uh, finance. The question is how much of that richness is directly usable to understanding uh, the uh, the underlying basics of the econo- of the of the say macroeconomy. And there it becomes much more limited. Um, but I do think we, I, I, you know, we know today models, you know, much more about which models explain what type of evidence and which ones don't and where the challenges are. I, I, so I do think we've made advances there. Do we have a full, complete understanding of the, of the empirical evidence? Evidence? Absolutely not. And yet, you know, a lot of people claim that by the mid early 1990s, say, uh, fiscal policy was widely understood to be um, unimportant, irrelevant, um, a thin read you couldn't really lean on, and not important for for guiding the economy. Uh, all of a sudden, it's back. Um, I think for not very scientific reasons. Um, it, it makes one worry that there are, that there are fads in economics unrelated to scientific progress, say akin to the age of the, the sun or the universe. Uh, what do you think of that? Uh, there, 
so we got, there's two parts of this. What's, what do you think about fiscal policy? And the, and the other is what do I think about fads? So I, let me address the issue of fads. There are research fads in a sense of, well, here's the, there's the hot topic syndrome, right? So I, I often, um, yeah, some, sometimes my own discipline gets, gets embroiled in these like citation counts and the like. And that can be, that I'm often skeptical about, uh, even though I've had some papers that have been highly cited because those are the good a ones. Lot of that <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them, you know, is hot topic chasing. So if you write a paper on the topic du jour, then, then, then you kind of, uh, everyone jumps in and, and, and they all cite each other and, and, and but then the, but then you have to ask, where's this literature five, six, and seven or eight years later? How, you know, what, how much staying power or durability does it have? And I think that's the more interesting question. There are, but there are indeed research fads. I mean, people, people are all the time looking for what topics to work on. There's, you know, graduate students writing dissertations, young, young scholars working to get their careers off the ground. Um, how do I make big splashes? And there's, so there's, uh, the hot topic chasing takes place. And, you know, some of those hot topics end up becoming important topics and, and, and many fade. So I'm, um, I'm certainly, so, so I do think there's an element of fads that takes place in, uh, in economic research and it takes time to kind of, for the, uh, fads to die out. Um, did you want to say anything about policy. fiscal policy? Yeah. Yeah, so I, um, the fiscal policy certainly as a, fiscal policy certainly as an implemented, there's no, it's conceived of or implemented. There was not, no obviously big gains to be had there. And I, and I personally think that, that for really going forward that, uh, that, that fiscal challenges, long-term fiscal challenges are, 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 are contributing to uncertainty in ways which we ought to be addressing. There's always this notion that, well, Let's go and do a bunch of fiscal stimulus now and worry about long-term budgetary consequences later. And there's this other component to that is the fact that um, I think this is like a quote of Milton Friedman's or somebody said, you know, there's nothing more durable than a short-term uh, increase in, in a government program. Or, uh, uh, it's, 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 once you start these things, they're hard to stop. Um, I, I actually would have thought, or at least to me, a more sensible approach to thinking about Fiscal stimulus would have been the would have, would have been the would have been the following. Suppose the government has in place a set of uh, projects that are infrastructure projects that they can done cost benefit analysis and they think that are, that, that they're really important and, uh, to be done eventually. Um, there's some flexibility of the timing and the like. Well, maybe at a time of uh, of a macroeconomic downturn, there's enough uh, that that's a good time to actually be making these infrastructure investments. Maybe labor costs are down and the like, and and uh, and, and, and 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 then do sensible things. Now, now this is this is premise in the fact that a government would have had in place so-called shovel-ready projects that, are, that were really that, that they can document are of, of great importance, and uh, and and then shift the timing now. That's a that's a different type of perspective than people pushing for standard fiscal stimulus. So we'll, let's just get the economy going by putting money out there, and that lever, I I agree, is uh, can be quite flimsy. Well, I think their view is that in in times when interest rates are close to zero and the economy is struggling, all infrastructure projects have a positive cost benefit analysis um, uh, that the benefits outweigh the cost. That's yeah. I've oh, heard no, Joe yeah, Stiglitz. Yeah, I've heard Stiglitz yeah. say that. I've heard I Krugman that, say it. Yeah. Yes, I agree. That's their view. Uh, that's that that would, so that part of fiscal stimulus would not be my view. Absolutely. And how would we know? They're smart. You're smart. Both yeah. both sides are smarter than I am. You know, how would we? How do we it's adjudicate? Very interesting. Now, one of our sensible discussions of this it, it, it was by a person who was with a prominent policy role at some point in time. But he um, he was this person was got up there and said, well. We really don't know the impact of fiscal stimulus. It could be there or it's not there. But if we do it, uh, the costs of doing it are not all that high and the benefits may be there. So therefore, per, I, I, we should go ahead and do it. It was the one person pushing for fiscal stimulus that was doing it based on acknowledging the fact that at least there is some serious uncertainty out there. Um, now, now we can debate whether the, whether, whether the cost of doing it were really that low or not and, and, uh, and just kind of what the likely benefits might be. But I thought it was at least framed in a more, uh, in a more sensible way. But you can't, unfortunately, that's not a, that's not the way you can influence policymakers if you frame the discussion that way. Yeah. Uh, and the other side, of course, also says that, that the future costs are very small. Uh, so even if, you know, maybe the costs are bigger than the benefits, but the costs are so small, they're probably not. And those future expectations about debt and taxes are not important. That's their 
That's their selling point. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm always nervous when people say, well, let's not worry about budgetary consequences now. We'll just always fix them later and kind of, it's always later. So it's, uh, yeah, it's dangerous. That's, that's, <laughs> that's slightly dangerous. Yeah. Yes. Um, Going back, I, w- I want to tell a story about – it's interesting that you mentioned Arthur Burns because my favorite story about systemic risk involves Arthur Burns. Uh, George Schultz tells the story. He was head of OMB in the 70s in the Nixon administration, and Penn Central Railroad was going uh, broke. And Arthur Burns – according to Schultz, Arthur Burns, who was the man we mentioned earlier in the Burns and Mitchell business cycle stuff, uh, Burns was saying we have, to, we have to bail out Penn Central because th- – there's systemic risk. They're going to fail and that'll bring down other institutions. And yeah. Schultz personally, again, this is his words in memory, his memory. Schultz says, well, I felt really bad disagreeing with Arthur Burns because Arthur Burns is really smart and savvy. And if Arthur Burns says this is, has systemic risk, I'm really – it probably does. And they were about to do something when a advisor ran into the room and said, Penn Central's just hired Nixon's old law firm. So for political reasons, we can't touch this with a 10-foot pole. We're going to have to let them, let them sink or swim on their own. So yeah. they sunk. Um, they went yeah. bankrupt. Nothing happened. <laughs> the, yeah. the systemic risk wasn't there. And I comment on the political economy of that, that sort of the downside risk for politicians, sure. whether it's – or policymakers, Ben Bernanke being an obvious example, the urge to do something seems very large when you're going to be blamed for the downside if you don't do anything. Yeah. No, I agree. There's just kind of there is this concern about you know you're in the hot seat right now, and uh, uh, it's and it's difficult to uh, it's often difficult for, for for them to have all the right incentives for for taking long term considerations. I mean, you 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 don't want to be sitting in the seat and watch things go bad, and so if you can uh, push off the uh, possibilities of bad things into the future, there's a temptation to do that. Um, but let me pick up on another part of your story that, that, that I think is quite important as well. Um, part of coming out of Dodd-Frank is that we now are going to be in this business of designating systemically important financial institutions. And I'm very concerned that this is going to become some, some, type of political pro, some type of politicalization. And as soon as these financial firms get designated as being systemically important, associated with that is some type of implicit government guarantees to not let bad things happen to them. And the incentive effects of that look to me to be really quite, quite problematic. And I know some of the systemically important firms that, that, that have been declared so far would have much preferred not to have that status, uh, even though there may be some benefits attached to it. And when there's like suggestions that, 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 that firms like, uh, Fidelity are, are, are going to become systemically important and the like, I get very, very nervous that this designation is going to be mm-hmm. applied in very, very broad ways. And, you know, Part of the ways to get enterprises to behave better is to at least let them to think about the risk of failure, and uh, uh, and that's that can be a very important mark, a very important market disciplining device. So the real challenge is how can we let these financial firms fail or uh, without having such much so much fear attached to that? And I think there's also a concern that if we make this systemically important. Financial institution designation politi- you know, politicized, and I, I, I'm just really concerned about that having bad consequences as well. Yeah, it, it seems to me part of the, the whole notion of systemic risk is trying to map the externality model onto the decisions of, of private financial firms. Um, the more that we politicize those decisions, the more systemic risk there is because we've said to them – uh, there is something of a free lunch for you. You will be rescued if you get uh, if you get in trouble, which certainly encourages them to become more interlinked with other firms like themselves to yeah. make the probability of being rescued higher. It seems like a very yeah. toxic combination. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you recommend instead? Do you have any thoughts on what might be a better way to reduce the risk of a 2008 in the future? Uh so I do think this idea, which I'm no expert in whatsoever, of um, of, of working out very, very uh, fast and efficient resolutions uh, of financial institutions in ways that the uh, we that we don't have a fear of their consequences. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. The counterpart to bankruptcy, but done in a super, you know, quick, you know, fast, fast way, is is uh, quite important going forward. 
Of course, one of the problems there is that, again, the firms have an incentive to make it very complicated so that those fast bankruptcies seem unlikely and therefore they're less likely to be allowed to go bankrupt. Yeah. So anyway, that's an important challenge, and I, I think it's, it's, it's kind of a critical one going forward. Let's let's go back to economics more generally. Uh, you talked about the fad problem and the topic du jour and graduate students doing jump hopping on whatever's the latest thing. Uh, what are the areas that you think fads or not that uh, are more enduring? What are the what are the research areas that you find most interesting, as well as uh, ones that aren't going to be for you, but you could recommend to students out there listening or, or students of economics generally? Yeah. So I really do think understanding better the connections between financial markets and financial market disruptions in the macro economy, building better models, understanding the, you know, the evidence, you know, which we have better, uh, new evidence is coming, it's, um, is now becoming available. Uh, I think that's a tremendously fascinating area. I also think of this more general area, this more general area of the consequences of uncertainty in, in, in terms of policy analysis and in terms of even understanding how the economy works. I think we kind of scratched the surface on that one. You know, the, the so-called risk model in which kind of lots of these risk effects and economic analyses kind of take on a kind of second order of nature to them as, as, has, has, that's been the past perspective on this. And I think there's some, uh, thinking through how to, why uncertainty might be much more of a first order than second order uh, uh, impact in economic analysis, I view as uh, really critical. The part of this that I find challenging is how we get this into more discussions about policy analysis. Um, how do we bring uncertainty to that? And I think it's it's critical to be done, but that's you know because of the political incentives and the like, it's uh, it's, it's very challenging to have, uh, to get it done. Yeah, it, it, as you said, if you if you're not very confident, you don't tend to get a lot of attention. It's a that's a reality. It's, I guess I can be confident in my lack of confidence, but that doesn't go quite as far. Yeah, that that's my that's my strategy. It it limits <laughs> it, it limits my my audience, but we're doing the best we can. Um, yeah, you know, you referred to this interaction between the financial sector and and, macro, and the macro economy. I was struck in the aftermath of the of the crisis, knowing very little about uh, finance. Uh, I know a little bit about macro, but very little. I knew very little about finance, and I me- realized I had to get a little more educated and understand some of those linkages. Um, and I'm not alone. I think a lot of economists realize they'd special- specialized in one or the other without thinking about the connections. Is there anybody doing work out there now that you think is promising on that interaction? I think there's lots of interesting work being done on that now. Um, that, that there's a little bit of a danger about, well, here's the crisis. We got to like rush to quick answers. And, and, and there's been a whole variety of different type of modeling, uh, approaches to this all the way from, from, uh, looking formally at network structures and, and, and kind of interactions to, to kind of looking more at in the in sta- in more standard macro models with such, you know, what happens if financing constraints start binding and the like. Um, Kind of sorting out which which of these type of approaches is really going to be the most empirically relevant and the most and 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 the most sensible one for policy analysis is, is completely wide open right now. Um, so I I think our overall you know once you attach quantitative ambition to this it's going to be a while before we're going to have a you know the next kind of really you know models with more which I can place more confidence in. But I I think there is there's there's a lot of really smart Young people uh, that, are, that are going this area as well. Um, I, I, I've, I've been at conferences in which I, I and I've you know watched the job market and, and, and you know there's a rush to do work in this area and a lot you know not all of it's good. Some of it's very superficial, but but some very smart economic scholars are have been drawn into this area, and, and so I have some optimism there. Yeah, it's it's a Nobel Prize uh, out there for for folks. So I assume a lot of people are going to try to. Try to grab that, right? There's going to be uh, a big return if you could tell a good story of, and model that well. Yeah. Uh, let's close. Um, you mentioned earlier, you mentioned climate change. Have you um, have you thought much about that empirical uh, challenge, which strikes me as a very uh, similar, I've claimed this before, reminds me a lot of the yeah. economics um, or understanding the economy. Uh, there's both risk uh, There's un- and there's uncertainty. There is or I'll say ambiguity, using your word. Have you looked at that? Do you um, 
Do you have an opinion on the, the quality of that work? So um, there's, a, there's a really big challenge here. Uh, I, I've, I've actually been involved in a, uh, in a research venture on campus here that's supposed to – the idea was to bring together climate scientists and economists and, and, and you know, try to think about these issues, uh, uh, confronting uncertainty and the like. And the, um, there's a whole class of climate models out there that are kind of very – very nonlinear models in which there's um, of a different type than economists are used to because they don't really have models of these kind of shocks hitting systems. It's all kind of unknown, unknown, and unknown initial conditions that that are they're very they're they're very very complicated models to solve. They get you know they get when solved they get very rich output, but they're not models that it's really easy for people like like me to uh, think about how to quantify the uncertainty coming out of them. And I think that's critical if you want to think about designing. Economic policy to confront climate change. Um, it may well be that you want to, for instance, it may well be that, you, that, that, that even with meager knowledge, you want to act now, but rather than wait, for, wait until our knowledge base increases because it's because the costs are lower now, or or you know, or maybe you want to wait and learn. I mean, that's 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 a critical trade-off, and it would be great to have ways to quantify that. And so I I got drawn into this with that type of ambition. Uh, as of course, as is most most research, has turned out to be remarkably more difficult than I'd hoped. But I, I still there's interesting stuff to be done there. Yeah, no, it reminds me of fiscal policy, right? It's the same issue. We we have to act yeah. now. We have a, we have people who are hungry. People are out of work. Uh, there may be some costs, but they're in the future, and they're probably small. So better safe than sorry. And um, it's a question of really trying. You really would want to measure those the size of those costs to yeah. to, to know whether it's a it's a good policy or not. And we don't seem to have much evidence on it. Yeah, but that's so. Here, I, I think the best core, the best statement is that there could be very big consequences. It's not that we know it's, it's um, um, and so maybe it's sensible to start doing things now, just because of the possibility that there could be very dramatic consequences otherwise. I, I find that personally of some appeal, but I, yeah, it's, it's, would I love to be able to quantify that or make it more, more of a systematic formal statement? And I, the answer is yes, but I don't know how to do it yet. Let's close with a personal note. Um, if you, if you want to share it, uh, winning a Nobel Prize is kind of a life changing event, uh, no doubt. Um, going forward, what do you see as your research agenda and, um, how much of that's been affected by winning the Nobel Prize? Yeah. So I've actually been wrestling with this question for the last – when I've had my free, limited free time. On yeah, it's a big distraction. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's so – the thing that is the case is the fact that because of the Nobel Prize, you're, you're, you're suddenly given more attention. Um, yeah, I tell people, well, I'm the same person I was eight months ago, but somehow you're treated differently as if your IQ just jumped by 40 points or something. But anyway, it, um, so it's, it, that, that my experience, experience is kind of interesting along some dimensions. So I mean, I go, I go to like, uh, these, you know, public events and now people want to talk to me, whereas before they're happy to ignore me. And that's yeah. like, okay. <laughs> but, um, I think there's an opportunity out there. I, uh, I've been very, very lucky about over the years having some great graduate students. Uh, that um, just in advance of me going to Stockholm, they, they threw a conference in my honor, and, and, and I've had about 60 that have been that I was a formal advisor of, and well over 100 and some that I've been on committees of. And just seeing them out there doing a whole variety of important, interesting research is really is, is um. I'm um, very gratifying. So what I I really like to do is you know whatever attention I have going forward is to try to um, Draw attention to try to encourage and nurture um, young scholars and in fields that are uh, a very interesting, of great interest to me. So if I can help to become not only to continue to make my own advances, but help to, help to become a more effective advocate for for lines of research, then I, I think that's probably the best to do. Well, I suspect some of them are listening. Uh, my guest today has been Lars Peter Hansen. Lars, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Sure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. 
I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.